Well, good morning, church. Have you gotten over the trauma of new seating arrangement? You okay? You okay? Some of you can't focus right now. It's like squirrels in the room. It's, I'll feed you very slowly to, <laughs> to get you in. Uh, well, welcome. Welcome if you're watching online. So glad you're joined with us there as well. If you have your Bible with you this morning, hope you do. Turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to spend some time in 1 Timothy chapter 6. When I lived on the other coast of Florida, a friend of mine had season tickets to the Orlando Magic. And I love basketball. And they really, I guess, weren't his. They were his companies. And it turns out that these tickets were rarely used. Uh, on a certain Sunday, he found out that I love the NBA and that, uh, you know, I played basketball. And so he offered me his tickets that Sunday and for the future dates that were unused. And I told him I needed to pray about it. Three seconds later, I, you know, I accepted his offer and, and, and they were used. And, and when I got to the stadium, my, my wife and I realized that these weren't just any season tickets. These were third row center court season tickets. There was a separate entrance at the stadium for people who had these tickets and you got to enter the stadium through the tunnel where the players entered. And if you were so inclined, you could stay there until it was time for the players to come out and you could slap hands, high five all the players as they entered the stadium. And I was so inclined. <laughs> now, I'm just shy of 6'5", and in most scenarios, I'm the tallest guy in the room. So that's not good, that's not bad, it just is. I'm used to that. But when you're standing in a tunnel next to Dwight Howard, when you're standing in a tunnel next to Carmelo Anthony, I felt so short. <laughs> I've never felt short before, so I stood there and I waited for the point guards to come in, and I still felt short. No matter how long I stood there, that's what happens. My point is that tall is relative. It's like, yeah, you're tall, but compared to who? So in some rooms, I'm going to feel tall. Like when I went to my son's kindergarten class back in the day, I felt like a giant in that room. But in this room, filled with NBA players, I felt incredibly short. And you might say, Kevin, what in the world does that have to do with 1 Timothy chapter 6? Well, starting in verse 17, Paul is going to be talking about the wealthy in Ephesus. And as soon as I say the word wealthy, some of you start to cringe. And because some of you are like, oh yeah, I'm wealthy. And some of you in this room are like, oh yeah, I'm so not wealthy. See, wealthy is based on who you compare yourself to. So if I compare myself to Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, I am not wealthy at all. But if I were to compare myself to some of our college students here, I might find myself to be very wealthy because wealth is relative. For example, on a global perspective, 80% of humanity, 80% of people who live on the planet Earth live on $10 a day or less. That means 80% of 7.8 billion people on this planet right now, 6.25 billion of them live on $10 a day or less. So you don't have to be 
all that great at math to realize that if you make more than $3,700 a year, you make more than 80% of humanity. That, that's the world stage. So if you make more than $3,700 a year on the world stage, you are considered wealthy. If you got up this morning and walked into your closet and opened up the doors and had a choice of clothing on the global stage, you're wealthy. If you got up and went to your fridge this morning, opened up and said, well, I could eat that or, or that or, or that or that, on the global stage, you're wealthy. If you got up this morning and you drove a car to church, on the global stage, you're wealthy. If you got up and had a choice between two cars, you are exceedingly wealthy. In fact, if you make more than $34,000 a year, from a global perspective, you are in the top 1% of wealth on this planet. If you make more than $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% when it comes to wealth on planet Earth. So when we talk about wealth, it's really wealth compared to whom? It's really important that we understand this as we start this morning. And while, like, I haven't been in your fridge, I haven't been in your closet, I'm not a creeper. Right? I don't go around. I, I don't know if you took the bus to church, rode your bike to church, or drove a car to church. I don't know. But I would venture to guess, if we were all honest, if we talk about a global perspective, we would all agree that we are all wealthy. Which means this text applies to everyone in the room. You know, because some weeks I teach, and, and you're sitting there and go, this really doesn't apply to me, but it applies to them. And maybe it's your spouse or your kids or that person down the row. Yeah, this text applies to all of us, including this guy. Now, as we mentioned way back when we started this series, uh, Paul is writing a letter to this young pastor, Timothy, who is leading a church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is one of the most affluent cities in the entire Roman world. It's one of the most affluent cities that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Do you realize that, that Ephesus had the third largest library in the known world at that time, only behind the city of Alexandria and Pergamum. And right next to that library, they have uncovered, through excavation and archaeological work, these houses. And in these houses are some of the most extreme wealth that they have been able to uncover in the ancient world. These rooms had massive mosaic floors that were larger than this auditorium. And, and they had these beautiful fresco walls, and they had detailed paintings of the, of the Nile River or the Parthenon in Athens. They had the finest pottery and cookware in the known world. They had huge vaulted ceilings. And with these vaulted ceilings, they had this, the, these special vents that were designed to capture the ocean breezes blowing in so they could have AC. They had heated floors. They had indoor plumbing. They had private restrooms. Nobody in the ancient world had seen anything like was going on at Ephesus. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, I told you about the class system. The highest class being the patricians. The patricians are the ones who lived in these homes. And these patricians would have all sorts of servants who cared for their needs. And, and these servants would care for the needs of their family. 
And that included carrying the patricians on a flatbed down the streets lest they fatigue themselves by walking. Ever seen that in downtown St. Pete? Yeah, me neither. But if you desired to walk, and sometimes they did, one set of servants would be carrying this large canopy covering over you to keep the sun from beating down on you. And the other set of servants would go out ahead of you crying out, make way, make way. And everyone in the city would part like the Red Sea so the wealthy person could walk down the street. Ever seen that in downtown St. Pete? These people ate the finest foods. They sat in the best seats at the theater. They donated vast amounts of money to the city so buildings could be built in their honor. These people, other than emperors and kings, they were considered the wealthiest people in the known world. They were the top 1% on planet Earth. And interestingly enough, many of these people had come to faith in Christ. In Ephesus, the wealthy were coming to faith in Christ. And Paul has already taught that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's, there's, there's no slave or free, male or female. He says, but all, regardless of culture, all, regardless of socioeconomics, are one in Christ. So one of the main questions facing the church at that time was, how do wealthy people handle their wealth in Christ? That was one of their first questions. And that's what these couple of verses are about. Take a look at verse 17. This is what it says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So right off the bat, he is not making a suggestion. Just to be clear, he's not asking for lots of people's opinions. He's not saying, you know what, if you feel like it, Timothy, you should do something. No, Paul says, Timothy, command these people to do something. Timothy, command these people to be something. Command it. And Paul says, apparently, there are some who are rich in this present world. Which means that there are some who are poor in this present world. But that seems to imply that you could be rich in the present world, but be poor spiritually. And there's a possibility that you could be poor in this present world, but you could be rich spiritually. And Paul seems to be making a bit of a contrast in terms of what does it mean to truly be wealthy? See, it's so easy to look at someone's bank account, to look at someone's balance sheet and go, oh, they're wealthy. But Paul's going, that's the measuring stick? Because the Bible says things like, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his or her own soul? Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And then, then he says, this is the hope. This is what real wealth looks like. He says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Apparently, that's important. That doesn't seem to be talking about bank accounts and Benjamins. 
The real riches we have is not in the things of this world. The real riches we have is found elsewhere. Sure, some people have done better than others when it comes to accumulating wealth. But the reality is the real riches that we have, the real riches of this world, we share in common. So whether you're great at accumulating wealth or you're not great at accumulating wealth, there is something that we share together that's better that, that, that we share in common, regardless of how many clothes are in your closet, regardless of how many cars are in your garage, or, or it doesn't matter what kind of food you eat. The reality is there are shared riches, and these riches are found in Christ. And so here in Ephesus, patricians and slaves in every class in between are showing up at church, and they're talking about their shared inheritance of the riches that are in Christ. Rich and poor sitting in the same building trying to figure out how to do life together missionally. Tell me that didn't mess with the watching world. Because nowhere else did all the classes and all the cultures come together and agree on anything. But they did in the church there was no place on earth where the various classes mingled like this. They worked together in this thing called the church. And Paul is saying to them, and I think to us, he goes, there is a massive blessing that I think you're missing. You think the blessing is wealth, but the massive blessing is that our names are written in the book of life. And that we are going to spend eternity with Christ. That while everyone might not have the same amount of money, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Christ and his salvation is the great equalizer. And Paul goes on to say to those who are rich in this present world, he says, hey, you shouldn't be conceited. If you're wealthy in this present life, you shouldn't be conceited. Your Bible might say arrogant. You shouldn't act prideful. You shouldn't be haughty. Because in Christ, wealth doesn't make you culturally superior. In, in Christ, wealth does not make you morally better. And it seems like the caution with relative wealth is that relative wealth can make you arrogant. Proverbs 18.11, the rich man, it says, the rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. They imagine it to be a high wall of safety. They think that wealth saves. They think that wealth protects, but it's only in their imagination is what it says. There can be this sense of arrogance with those who think they are better than others because of their wealth, but in Christ, that isn't true. And that shouldn't happen in a healthy church. And not only does Paul command the rich not to be arrogant in verse 17, he tells us not to put our hope in the uncertainties of wealth. Now, you read about the uncertainties of wealth, but when the economy's going great and our 401ks are going up, and we can put our money and make interest and all that sort of stuff, everything's going rosy, we think that we're just going to make money forever and ever. But when a recession hits, or the housing bubble thing pops, or inflation rolls in, or I don't know, a worldwide pandemic shows up, the truth of this passage comes front and center. 
It's in those moments that we truly know that uncertainty of wealth actually means something. Because the reality is, both in the first century and in our day, riches are uncertain. There are no guarantees. Wealth will come and wealth will go. That's Proverbs 27. Riches will not go on forever, nor do governments go on forever. Proverbs 23. This is crazy the way the wording works, but put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for the food is deceptive. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Think about your career. There was a day you looked at your career and said, if only I could make X everything would be different. And then by God's grace, you made X. And you say, if only I could make X plus, everything would be different. And then you make X plus, and then you go, if only I could make X plus plus, then everything would be different. And we've probably been doing that for our entire career. That's the thing about wealth. It's elusive. It fakes like it will satisfy. But as soon as you get what you think you want, all you need is more. And look at verse 17 again. Paul says, instead of fixing your hope on the uncertainty of riches, which will come and will go and will never ultimately satisfy, he says, put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment because the truth is riches or the desire for riches exposes the heart that's what jesus said matthew chapter 6 remember that from like we were in it for 14 years i mean i hope you didn't forget it all right but he says where your treasure is there your heart will be also do you realize there is nothing wrong with being wealthy The Bible never says you are not supposed to be wealthy. The Bible never says you can't buy a house, you can't buy a car, you can't have investments. It doesn't speak to that that way. There's nothing wrong with having nice things, but we must recognize that both wealth and nice things can very, very quickly become idols. If you read your Bible, it seems like idols are a big deal to God. Uh, Maybe it's just me. It's one of the big ten, so I'm thinking it's probably a big deal. Many of you know that I drive a Mini Cooper, and you're laughing because I just told you I was 6'5". There's more room than you think. But my very first Mini Cooper, 100,000 miles, you know, had some dings, had some rust, beat up a little bit, you know, had some problems with it and so on. But then I got another one. It was still 15 years old, but it didn't have as many miles on it. The better color, had a sunroof, a little faster. Then I got another one, less miles, a little faster. You see the trend, my wife, (laughs) and so on. But now, it's not a new one. I got the orange one. This is the one I've been waiting for, and it's not new, but it's an awesome car. And I got to tell you, I treat this orange Mini Cooper way different than I treated that first black one. And the reality is, this car has a place in my heart that that first one never did. 
Now, you probably have had nice things in your life or things that are important to you. Maybe uh, they were important to you because they were expensive or whatever, and they have a special place in your heart. And while that might not be bad, that might not be good because that special place in your heart can become not just a important thing, but it can become an ultimate thing, which becomes an idol very, very quickly. Isn't it Proverbs 30 all over again? We talked about this one last week, and it's messed with me all week. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches. This is a prayer. Give me neither poverty or riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I thought about that prayer all week because I don't like it. Because I can't figure out how to pray it the way I want to pray it. Because when I look at my life, I have asked God a thousand times to make me an NBA player. But I know my skill level, and I know that I do not have the ability to play at the NBA level, but I really wanted him to make me an NBA player, but he didn't. And I think it would have killed me because the amount of money that those people make I think it would have corrupted my soul. Lord, just give me what I need, no more, no less. Help me be content right where I am. I stink at being content. I stink at being patient. I say, I mean, we're just confession here, you know. I don't know about you. I stink at being content. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes is written by King Solomon, arguably the richest person financially that's ever walked the planet is what they're saying now, who is certainly the other than Jesus, the wisest man to ever live. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. It's funny, last week we talked about contentment. What did Amazon release this week? It's what? Amazon Prime Week. I heard you laugh. I heard you laugh. It's one click away and you can purchase anything you want, right? Content one week, Amazon Prime week the next. One of the hardest things right now for many people is the ability to say, no. No, no, I don't need that. No, I don't want that. No, that will not satisfy me. It will not bring fulfillment for me, and it will never be enough for me. Saying no is a lost art form, and Amazon knows it. Because here's the gut-level truth. Wealth makes a terrible Savior and an even worse God. So if that's where you're putting your hope, Proverbs 11 says, those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. The question has to be, so what does it look like then? What does it look like to fix your hope, to fix our hope on God? I think it really starts with a mind shift. Because when you fix your hope on God, it brings a different kind of return on investment, according to Paul. Because lots of you work in the financial sector, and, and I think you go, hey, uh, anything north of 7% on return on investment, it's got to be north of 7% for it to be a good deal. And if it's not north of 7%, then, then you're not interested. And I'm saying here, what Paul's saying here is, we're talking about a different sort of currency. 
Because the kingdom return on investment, it's not necessarily going to change the way your bank account looks or the way your portfolio looks. But it will change the way your joy looks. It will change the way your stress looks. It will change the way your peace looks. It will change the way your eternity looks. It will change your outlook on your life. See, Paul is showing us a danger here. He, he's saying our minds need to shift about some things. It's funny because in the Old Testament, you've got the nation of Israel is in slavery. They walk through the Red Sea. They wander in the desert, which is funny we say wander. You know God was leading them, right? So wandering is an interesting term to me, but whatever. They wandered for all this time, but they get right up, and they're going to go into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And what does God say to them in Deuteronomy 8? He says, you may say to yourself, nation of Israel, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. They're going to take credit for it. He says, but remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's Psalm 24 says the same thing. Summed up, don't get cocky. Don't get cocky. So if you had a good month, you know, God's gone before you and opened up some doors for you. But don't get cocky if your W-2 this year looks way better than your W-2 from previous years. Yes, you worked hard, praise God, but it's... Also, your God who goes before you. Because trust me, he can do it without you. But you cannot do it without him. He can do it without you. He doesn't need us as nearly as much as we think he does. But you can't do anything without him. A group of us just finished reading the book of Haggai together where the people of that day are neglecting the things of God. And God looks at them and says, hey, look, y'all are harvesting, but you're still hungry. And you're drinking wine, but nobody's getting tipsy. You're making money that you think you are making, and you're putting them into pockets with holes in them. If you don't honor God, everything you have is like chaff. The wind will just blow it away. We think we're building empires. And I think sometimes God looks at us and goes, aren't you cute? I'm building an empire. Steady. You're, you're playing with Legos. Let's be honest what you're doing. Because I think sometimes the Lord looks at us and says, you really think you're in control? Really? How about a global pandemic? Let's see what they do with that. Hey, let's try a recession. <laughs> let's try all sorts of things. Let's see how they do with that. We have no control. And I think it's interesting that in the last couple of years, we've become a little more aware of that with all that's happened in our world. But Paul says, focus instead on God who richly supplies us with all things. And what I think is pretty neat here is actually, what does your Bible say to enjoy? Do you see what it says there? What do we get to enjoy? Everything. Yeah, how great is that? We get, enjoy everything. I think that's critical because there's nothing wrong with enjoying yourself. There's nothing wrong with owning a home. There's nothing wrong with owning a car, with going on vacation, with having family experiences, with, with whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem centers around stewardship. That's where the problem centers. Because some people, the church likes to talk about the prosperity gospel, right? Healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
with an, really an emphasis on wealth. <laughs> That's what we want. The rest is nice, uh, but we really want wealth. Uh, I, but I think some people in the church are chasing the poverty gospel. They're like, no, 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 I can't be wealthy. I've got to give it all away because there are starving children someplace, and I don't know where they are, but somebody must be starving, so I can't have anything. I have to live on nothing. I, 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 I've got to, and you've got to be really careful because some of those thoughts and feelings might be good on some level, but some of that might actually be a curse because that's moralism. You're feeling like if I do these things, if I deprive myself, then God will love me. That's transactional relationships. See, none of that's the issue. The issue is, how are you stewarding what God has given you? Whether he's given you a lot or he's given you a little. He never says everybody in the church has to make the same amount of money. It's a stewardship issue. If you've been given a lot, how are you stewarding a lot? If you get a little, how are you stewarding a little? Because that's the calling he's placed on us. You know he's called us to be a good steward. And most Christians go, I've heard that before. Let me put it like this. Some of you have a financial advisor. So, and some of you don't. But if you wanted a financial advisor, you would go to someone who did and say, do you have a financial advisor? And they would say yes. But shouldn't you ask, do you have a good financial advisor? Because if there's a terrible financial advisor, why would you say, here, handle my money too? No one. See, you're not supposed to be a financial advisor. You're supposed to be a good one. That's the point. You're not supposed to be a steward. You're supposed to steward a good. You're supposed to be a good steward. That's the idea that he's after. And some people are like, steward? Well, what is that? A steward is someone who manages someone else's money. Sort of like a financial advisor. Which means if, if you're a steward, um, it's not yours. It's not yours at all. We didn't think it's ours, but it's not ours. It's really God. God owns it all. That's Psalm 50. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. God is the one running things. And so what he does is he takes some of those cattle that are on a thousand hills and he sells some of them and he puts the money in your bank account and he says, steward it. That's what really happens. And so we have this responsibility to steward whatever God has given us, whether you've got a lot or you've got a little. And it's okay to, to not be as wealthy as the person next to you. It's okay. Isn't it really just Matthew 25 all over again? It's funny because that's the parable of the steward. But most Christians call it the parable of the talent, which is kind of a dumb term because it's about the steward not the talent because it's the one talent guy the five talent guy the ten talent guy first talent right takes it buries it in the ground nothing walks back gives it to the owner here's your one talent back five talent guy right doubles it ten talent guy goes out doubles it both of them come back so the five talent guy now says here's ten. Ten talent guy comes back says here's 20 what's really interesting about the story is both the five talent and the ten talent guy they get the exact same commendation which means god's not really looking for a winner he's looking for a faithful steward it's the parable of the steward not the talent so how are you doing stewarding what God has given you? What, what, what might you need to start doing in order to stewarding the resources you've been given in a way that communicates, hey God, it's all from you, 
and it all belongs to you. And as hard as those questions are to ask and wrestle with, Paul actually addresses this in verse 18. He says again, he uses the same word, command them. That's weird. Don't suggest to them. Don't present an interesting idea to them. He says, command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say, cut a check. I think we read that sometimes and go, oh, God just wants me to cut a check. We need people to cut checks, sure. But notice it says, command them to do good and to be rich in good works, which means don't just cut a check, get involved. Get your hands a little dirty. How about serving in some way? How about living on purpose? Because remember back in Matthew again, Jesus looked at us and said, hey, Christian, you are saved from something. But he also says you are saved to something. Some of us are looking in the rearview mirror all the time. Try driving a car that way. That's weird. Your insurance rates will go up. You are saved from something, but some of you have forgotten. He's got something for you. You've been saved to something. So, how about you? Where are you serving? Or are you just writing checks? It's funny, some of you don't even know it. This church, we have a benevolence team. I don't know how many of you know that. If I was to have you raise hands if you knew they existed, I don't know how many of you would do that. You, you know what their job is at this church? No pastor sits on that team whatsoever. What they do is they have money that when someone loses a job or has, has a financial need, they come alongside the family and help with water bills, house bills, the car, whatever it needs to do to help that family make it. I have no idea who gets served through the benevolence. And they do that on purpose so that I don't stand up here and go, oh, you got issues. So do you. You're like, you know, I don't want to be that guy. I, I, I want to look at everybody exactly the same. Did you know that that existed here? You know, there's a whole other team called the Congregational Care Team that gets together and their sole job is to look at this family and go, who this week needs help? Who this week needs, something's going on, their fence blew over and maybe uh, they need some help putting it back up. They need encouragement. Maybe they just had a child and we could come alongside with meals. Maybe they're just in the hospital and somebody could visit them. There's a whole team that, that does that. What would it look like if you joined one of those teams? Just to care for the body. J just us. That would be an exciting church to me. What would that look like? God wants us to be generous with our checkbooks and our time. And no Christian ever said, what? Then why is it that churches struggle with finances and volunteerism? Why is that? I think our time and our money might be bigger idols than we care to admit. Again, I told you I'm in a life transformation group. We're reading through our Bibles chronologically together this year. We, we get together once a week. We talk about what we read. and We just finished... Zechariah and Esther and Malachi. And I think we all know, I hope, that God is not a genie in a bottle that we rub the side and when he pops up we get three wishes. I mean, sometimes I think we wish he would do that, but that's not who he is. But Malachi and the other prophets do say that you cannot outgive God. Do you realize that? That's what the prophets say. You cannot outgive God. You can try. But God has this funny way of giving even more back. But he doesn't give more back to you so you can say, wow, this is a great investment. I give God a little bit and he just pours. No, what he's saying is, 
you give. And he goes, really, you're going to mobilize this, these resources for my kingdom. I'm going to drop some more resources in your lot. Not so you have more, but so you can mobilize more resources in the kingdom. And I'm going to drop more off, and you're going to mobilize more resources in the kingdom. And you're like, hmm, this is pretty great. And you might find just like Malachi said in Malachi 3, it says, God, God says, test me in this and see if I will not just open up for you the storehouses of heaven. Why? Because God is looking for faithful stewards. And so the question came up in my group this week. So there are churches around the country that are doing this. And we had this discussion about whether our church should do it. There are churches around the country right now that are saying, listen, if you will commit financially in significant ways to the church, significant ways to the church, and you will do that for three months, if at the end of three months God hasn't done the incredible in your life, your church will give it all back to you. We'll just write you a check back. That's what they're doing. And, and, and they're doing it. And, it's, and I thought, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because, I mean, there are some biblical principles there, like, hey, you can't outgive God. And so try it. Just for three months, just try just lavishing. Just You're just going to give. And if not, we'll write you a check back. And there are people here who have asked me to consider doing the same thing. But here's where I'm stuck. If you're a believer... And you've been in the church for more than, I don't know, 60 seconds. And you know what the Bible says about giving. Then why are you making your church employ a gimmick to get you to give back to God what's already his so that we can mobilize it for kingdom work around your family and around your workplace and around your city and around this world? I'm struggling with that. I don't know what to do with that. Because has anyone not heard a pastor say, oh, God loves a cheerful giver? And we know that verse, right? We've all heard the pastor say, we all sow sparingly, reap sparingly. We know those passages. See, this is a heart issue. It's always been about our hearts. That's why he says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, looking to strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. What does my heart say when I start thinking about giving to the church? Why does the temperature rise in the home when we start talking about giving? Why is it a huge wrestling match? Why is my heart so hard to giving? Do you realize that current stats say the average Christian, the average Christian gives, spends more money every year on dog food than they give to their church? That's, and some of you are like, all right, well, I give more than I spend on dog food, so... I'm doing it great. I'm like, okay, we should be like lapping the dog food budget, I'm thinking. But some of you are like, Kevin, do you know how much dog food is since the pandemic? And I'm like, yeah, I got a dog that eats like a beast. I do. But again, it's a heart issue. See, giving is supposed to be fun. Do you realize that the word cheerful, you know, God loves a cheerful giver? In the original language, the word used for cheerful is where we get our word hilarious from. Do you realize that? So it's supposed to be God loves a hilarious giver. 
Like, this is fantastic. This is awesome. I can't stop laughing when I'm giving. It's like going to a Jerry Seinfeld concert or a Jim Gaffigan show. This is fantastic, said no church giver ever. Why is that? Here's why it's fun. Jesus never affirms the quantity of the gift, but the quality of the sacrifice. That's why it's hilarious. That's the great equalizer. That's the whole like widow's might thing. So the question we have to deal with, and it's a question that we don't talk about very much at Faith Covenant is, and I never, most of you have never heard me talk about money. What does the Bible say about tithing and why do we tithe? Really all tithing is, it's a word that means tenth. That's really all it is. And what it was set up in the Old Testament, all the way back at the beginning of your Bible, to all through your whole Bible, it was set up because the idea from God was, hey, listen, I'm going to drop off a ton of money in your lap. So how about, I don't know, 10%? That's not too much, is it, right? How about you keep 90, and I'll, this wasn't a 50-50 split, because he could have said that. Hey, we're going to divide everything I give you 50-50. And some of you are like, nope. But he just said, how about, how about you keep 90, and I keep 10? And so that's what came about. And so what's supposed to, you're supposed to give this money to the community of faith for the furthering of the community of faith, meaning to care for the body and to share the gospel. It's something God says we need to do. He says it's important for his church and it's important for his people. And while the Old Testament gives a percentage, in the New Testament, you know what God does? He says, listen, apparently the percentage was controversial. Apparently 10% is going to make everyone mad and angry. So how about I'll do away with the percentage and how about you just give? But do it. Just don't do it grudgingly. Don't do it under compulsion. Like, don't do that. It should be a joy. It should bring satisfaction. You should be lavishing stuff. How much you give is worth praying about as a family of God. Because some of you are going, giving, giving just causes arguments. And the scriptures say, no, giving honors God. No, giving combats selfishness and arrogance. No, giving breaks the chains of consumerism and materialism in your life. Giving attaches you to a much larger vision in our city and in our world and attaches you missionally to the heart of God. You think it brings about fights? No, it does so much more. But did you notice that in verse 18, it's not just about being generous, but it's also about being ready to share. He's basically treating us like kindergartners here. You should share, right? Because we don't like to share. See, because we've become a culture that's more inwardly focused. And his point is, you should share whatever you have. I don't know how long you've been at this church. Ray Keener used to have a blue truck. I think there's a point in this church that everyone here had a key to it. I, it was parked over there, and it, we, they didn't even know where it was half the time. People just had it, were using it for whatever. That's what we're talking about. There's people in this church, especially during COVID, but still going, you needed groceries? Can I drop some groceries off at your house? Hey, you know what? You need a hug? Can I give you a You need a safe place or person just to sit down and chat with? What, what do you need? You need to be picked up and taken to the doctor? I can do that. Share. And when you share your stuff, Tell them why you're sharing it. 
of the hope you have in Jesus Christ. Everything I have is from him. I share it with you because of him, and if need be, I'll give it to you because of him. You want it, you got it. Wouldn't that be a beautiful church to be a part of? And if we'll do this, if the church will live this way, look at what happens in verse 19. It says, this is crazy town now. In this way, they, those who give, will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So what verse 19 is saying is, this is a kingdom ROI. This is a kingdom return on investment. So when you give generously, when you share generously, you actually store up treasures for you in heaven. That's pretty crazy to me. <laughs> that when I give stuff away, I'm investing, I, I store up treasures in heaven. Like for instance, I'll tell you how this gets lived out here in our church. Do you realize that... Um, Every student and young adult who goes on a mission trip from this church, we pay 50%, half of, eight, of wherever they go, 50%. We, we load up student ministry, we load up children's ministry and young adult ministry with people, money, and other resources. Why? Because people like Madison Kiefer and Kelly Dean and Kayla Varis and Ashley Russell and Seth Arnold and Ricky Roby and Matt Ellie and on and on it go can be trained, can be encouraged and resourced and prayed for and can be released as pastors in the kingdom or as marketplace missionaries in the kingdom to push back the kingdom of darkness right here, right now. And when we do this, this just said, we get the privilege of receiving crowns and rewards in heaven for resourcing them. That's nuts. Is that not like the best return on investment possible in the history of the world? Because that investment isn't of this world. It's an investment that lasts forever. And I know money is a subject that so many people don't want to talk about. But do you realize that Jesus talked more about money than grace, mercy, heaven, and hell combined? Do you realize that Jesus taught 29 parables, 11 of which are about money? Maybe he knew that wealth can quickly become a stumbling block. It can quickly become a marriage breaker, a stress inducer, an arrogance building issue if left unchecked. Do you realize there are 500 verses in your Bible about prayer, but there are 2,000 verses in your Bible about money? Which do you think he thinks you're going to struggle with the most? Money. Because you know what the truth is? For a healthy church that follows the house rules, money is either going to be an incredible gift that's mobilized for the kingdom, or it's going to be its Achilles heel. It's going to be one of the two. Because it's either a joy, as we look at life as stewards, or it's going to be that thing we just can't get a hold of, and worse yet, it might just get a hold of us as an idol. And so church, this series is called House Rules. The whole idea of this book is that this book is the owner's manual for a church, a church that wants to reach every man, woman, and child in the city in which they live with the transformational message of Jesus Christ. 
It's an owner's manual for a church that believes God's glory is greater than their story. It's a church that believes that their best days are yet to come. And so I want to read this passage to close in its entirety. And you tell me what you think you and your family need to do. This is what it says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. For a healthy church, those are the house rules.